0: Hello, I'm Christopher Cassan. Welcome back to Ireland's Edge. After another tumultuous year, we're back with a new series of thought-provoking discussions about the altered state of the world around us. We'll be talking about everything from climate change to data privacy, psychedelic drugs to the future of art, with guests including Guardian US editor John Mulholland, writer Seamus O'Reilly, energy investor Michael K. Dorsey, and many more. On today's episode, we ask how our housing system became so broken and what we can do to fix it. In front of a live audience at Ireland's Edge and Dingle, we were joined by Orla Hegarty, Assistant Professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at University College Dublin, Rory Hearn, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University, and the architect, Rob Curley. They spoke with Ireland's Edge curator, Moran Kelleher.
1: I am joined here by three who I think are fantastic people. Um, They have taken up arms in a very figurative uh, sense uh, to deal with the issues of housing, housing affordability, the concept of home, what it has come to mean in Irish society by decisions that we have taken at a policy level in recent years. They, to me, are remarkable for um, the energy and the effort which they are putting into this. They all have day jobs and lives and families and partners and babies and businesses that are being started, careers that are being done. But they devote enormous energy and effort and learnedness and erudition to online activity, to in-person activity, and to trying to shape the policy debate for what is happening in the concept of home as we see it in Irish housing policy. Um, I'm going to ask Orla first to Orla, can you give us your sense of the shifts that we have made in the last number of years um, in terms of following one track of policy to the track we now appear to be on. Uh, thanks, Moran. I, I think we've changed direction a bit without really doing it consciously.
2: Um, I, I was struck by um, Philip King on Thursday evening, uh, quoted Frank Hart, and he said that if you want to understand events in history, you can, you can read the texts, and if you want to know what it felt like, you listen to the music. Um, I think sometimes if you want to know the politics, you look at the architecture. Um, because politics is about how we allocate resources and the architecture is the most concrete form of how we allocate resources. And we have moved away from a collective view of housing being really core to us as beings, as human beings, to our safety and security and our family lives and our opportunity for education and employment and engagement and you know all of that collective, um, to a model of housing that moves away from that, that minimizes Um, that marginalises, uh, that makes things uh, very temporary for people, and that has resulted in a very large percentage of the population um, being insecure in in so many ways, insecure in their home, but insecure financially, um, concerned about their future security, their retirement, concerned about what ill health might mean. And um, that has, I think, been really damaging. And and I suppose the the politics then is reflecting that, in that we are prioritising the wrong things, I think, again, as we did before the last crash.
1: So if we come back to some of the outcomes that we're experiencing, like we are experiencing an affordability crisis, and the ability to contemplate home ownership is being removed from swathes of the population, in effect. We have a... You know, we are not building enough homes in the right places of the right type. Uh, We have a big backlog to address and we need to be gearing that muscle up at a very different level for the next number of years. We're also spending enormous amounts of money um, addressing and, and we're set to do even more as we look at the policy as it emerges. Rory, if you, you've talked to some of the financialization of what we're seeing in a, um, how do you characterize what that means? The affordability impact in individual lives.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, in some ways it's difficult, but if we look at, you know, what has happened over the last, you know, five years, you know, almost a decade, and we can go further back. What has happened is home and housing has been turned into a commodity, into an asset. And financialization is essentially a process by which we can go really far <laughs> into the macro analysis and look at you know, inequality, how inequality across developed worlds have, has grown significantly. What has that meant? That has meant that the top, you know, the 1% we heard about it, talked about in Occupy have you know, massive amounts of money, billions and trillions, and they're looking for somewhere to invest it. And what financialization is, is essentially the way in which these global wealth funds, equity funds, are turning um, aspects of our lives, like health, housing, into financial assets. And so we see investment funds increasingly buying up properties, developing build-to-rent, where they can extract rent over long periods of time. And this is something different. And that's why, you know, it's amazing to be back here in Dingle. Um, It's wonderful to be here again. It's such an amazing place, because it was 22 years ago, showing my age, that I was here as a teenage student. um, And we did a field trip out around the Dingle Peninsula. And I remember, and of course, there's echoes from the the piece we saw at the start, learning about the evictions that happened uh, in the 19th century, about the impact of home the loss of home, of emigration, of what that meant. And we also went and saw the council housing that was been built, or that had been built, the estates in Tralee, the, the function that that served for people to provide a home. And what I think what financialization does is it takes home, which is as essential as health, as education, more fundamental. People cannot survive without a secure, affordable, affordable, decent standard stable home they cannot survive as human beings they're stripped of their dignity without it we have ter- financialization turns that into a commodity something that's bought and sold traded on international markets viewed and treated as an asset which means access is provided on the basis of your ability to pay quality and home is not the priority the extraction of maximum profit is the priority and so
1: if we look at that in an Irish sense where, in effect, what we've had is a weakening of regulation over the last number of years. Um, Rob, do you want to talk to what we've seen between kind of owner-occupied housing, rental housing, the, the changes that we've made to the regulations by which we structure housing
4: here? What we've essentially seen in the last number of years is a sort of race to the bottom in terms of housing that's based off of deregulating housing. It's talking about lowering standards in housing and it does this in very particular ways in policy. We're doing this at the behest of a financing model, which is a financing model that relies on large institutional investors who then are asking for a specific niche investment products. Previously we had co-living and we now also have build to rent. How these products rely on, what what they rely on is essentially, in 2018 we have the design standards for new apartments, and those design standards actually introduce the concept of new and exciting concepts of housing for young and increasingly internationally mobile workers. That's actually from the government's own document. What that document talks about is essentially saying, we need to reduce the standards for build to rent, we need to incentivize these micro-units, and we need to create this type of niche investment housing, which is what it is, and that this is going to solve our housing crisis. What it has done, it has basically skewed housing supply into that niche because if you are an investor, you're looking to maximize a financial return. So your incentive is to go with the type of housing that creates that maximum return. And so we've allowed this to dictate the supply. And in our urban environments in Dublin, we've seen in 2019, 95% of apartments, in fact, 95% of apartments in Ireland completed in 2019 were either built to rent or were bought by funds.
1: So maybe just to make it very real for us here in terms of what built to rent actually looks like in terms of the product, how we are using the productive capacity of our economy, and we know that that capacity is already stretched from a point of view. or if we look at this stage, um, there's four of us. we're all sizable individuals here sitting in our nice chairs and our how does the size say of a small what a small family would be expected to live in, in their forever house, not an Airbnb weekender job, but in their forever home. What would it be in relation to this stage?
2: we talked about this earlier, I hope there's no engineers in the audience who might come and prove us wrong, but uh, very very broadly speaking we're talking about maybe twice the area of this stage being a one-bedroom apartment. And, that and who would live in, in, in a term, one yeah, in apartment? In terms of people who would have a housing assistance payment, so it wouldn't be earning enough for market rents, and we know a lot of people can't, um, we're talking about uh, one or two adults and one or two children in that space, so twice the size of this space. And that includes their bathroom, their kitchen, their washing machine, their storage areas. And, you know, the reality of that for people's, well-being and mental health. We're designing these blocks very, very densely, So, um, and this is evidenced that some of them don't have sufficient daylight to, to adequate standards, so people are looking out at other apartments without a view of the sky or enough daylight. Uh, they're on long corridors, maybe with 40 other families, so a little bit like a hotel. Um, their kitchen door opens directly onto that corridor, so we know what that'll mean in terms of noise and cooking smells and that level of disruption. Um, and we can have several hundred families sharing one lift. So again, that's, you know, you're coming with shopping and a baby in a buggy and you're waiting for a lift and you're getting into a lift, obviously in that scale of building with a lot of strangers. So there's issues of personal security, I think, in all of that as well. Um, and, you know, it struck me watching some of the the toy show kids, you know, how, how do you live like that? Because, you know, where do you practice to be a DJ or an opera singer or a harpist? And all of these, you know, things that children need space for and need privacy for? And where do you work from home and study for your junior cert? And, um, you know, and just, just to relate the size, I mean, people will be familiar with the small Dublin two-bed corporation houses in Fair City, you know, that kind of small house that we thought was very small for families, big families, in the 20s and 30s. But those, those houses in their original form were probably four times this stage. And they were considered very small. You know, two of these stages on the ground and two upstairs. But they had the opportunity that they had daylight. They had a garden. You could grow vegetables. You could build a shed to practice your drum kit. You could extend the kitchen, you know, so that you could have family in for Christmas. You could go up into the attic and store your decorations. You know, they're just the practical things of family life may have been constrained in that size house Um, but the state did that and they did it in the tens of thousands um, through the 20s and 30s when the country had nothing and you know through the war years it all happened.
1: For this two-stage apartment let's call it that um, which we might be sharing on a corridor with 40 other doors coming up in one lift to the corridor how much would I be paying at these rates rob do you... if
4: you're in the, a single person you could be paying 2000 euro a month there's a scheme in uh, griffith woods in griffith avenue in Durham Conjure where one bedroom apartments are 1900 euro or 2000 euro a month for a single person to afford that you need to be earning more than 100000 euro a year for that to be a comfortable portion of your of your net income for for a family where you're being subsidized you're paying uh, i think 1275 after the subsidy but that's your that's the HAP payment for a, f- a family with two children. So you could be having a, you know, four people living in this one bedroom space, essentially, because that's the HAP payment that they can afford to rent for that. And on top of this, you have the state paying this builder, the, this developer, pardon, or, or the institutional investor, uh, several hundred euro to subsidize this micro-unit. And I think, just to add to that, that The the issue
3: that, you know, I have been raising for years and years around this, you know, since this policy has been developed, is that part of the problem in this is that the government has shaped its wider housing policy around the needs of these institutional investors. And one of the key areas is rents. So the government has been called on year after year, you know, since 2014, rents started rising, freeze rents, control them, stop them, But they said, no, time and time again, no, we're not going to do it because it might deter supply. And what they meant in that was it might deter the investors. The investors factor in, they want rents to continually rise. That is their, that's their return. And so that has been my big issue. We have not, we have allowed housing become unaffordable in order to suit, to create a housing system that's profitable for these global investment funds. Like, it is just bonkers stuff, you know, around these, these who have no interest in the future of this country, the future generations. What are we offering to people? Like, is this the future, paying two grand a month in, in, a, in a room that's, you know, not livable in, that you can't have a family in? That's, you know, this is not a future for people. And in part as well, we have said, you know, investors, uh, one of the investor funds said that the biggest threat to their investment prospects, was if the government delivered affordable housing on scale. They said it very explicitly. What has the government not done? Delivered affordable housing on scale. Why? I would argue in part because they do not want, it because they put all their eggs in the investor fund basket, and they're ideologically opposed to the state playing that really big role in delivering housing. They've just been idealized. They don't believe in it. You know, and they need to be much more honest about that. They see it as the market is the way you provide housing. The state plays a really limited role and that's what works. That's what we believe in. We don't want the Austria or the Vienna or the Copenhagen where half the housing is provided on a not-for-profit basis. Well, they're wrong. They're wrong. This system, this approach will not deliver affordable homes and the housing crisis that we're in will continue to worsen.
1: Orla, some of your particular speciality is procurement within all of this. Will you share some of the figures that you think actually we can build to? In a, and I suppose we're very conscious in here in a, you know, we're talking a lot here about the Dublin property market. But in effect, when you have this level of government subsidy going into it, it's taking up all of the money that otherwise needs to be distributed to address the exact same issues across the rest of the country, where we have a similar affordability issues, but where we also have similar shortages. But Orla, maybe just to come back, what, what, are, what cost are we, are we seeing built for now versus what your and other reports would say is a much more, is a, is a realistic target to go for.
2: Um, okay, without boring people again, there's a huge amount of of capital and property interests and all of this, and a lot of what we have to do is to take apart some of the arguments that are just adopted uncritically. Um, You know, people will have heard all of this regularly, that it costs 450000 to build an apartment in Dublin now, uh, that it costs uh, close to 400000 to build a house, a three-bedroom semi in Dublin now. Um, And yet, you know, you only have to go to Wexford or Carlow or Sligo to see that people are, private developers are selling houses for 200000 so that doesn't Stack up. Um, also, from my own work, I, you know, we, we can't. We could be delivering apartments in Dublin for under three hundred thousand. Nice apartments, livable apartments. Um, so the, the 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 investor narrative that it's you know their break even cost is four hundred and fifty thousand, and that really if they're leasing to the state, it's going to be six hundred thousand per apartment. Um, you know that we don't have the luxury of paying that. We don't have the luxury of paying six hundred thousand. And more, as is happening now in some cases, to lease housing for families in social housing tenancies. Um, There are are apartments being leased in Dublin for six, seven hundred thousand and more. And and what's worse is at the end of that lease, that family could be homeless again uh, because the state won't own the property, even though they'll pay off the mortgage twice. Um, So there's there's a kind of an economic nonsense I think in a lot of this that really needs to be challenged Uh, because if Dublin sucks up all the money into these rentals on very expensive leases there won't be anything left for the rest of the country for regional development um, for the other cities or to subvent people who maybe need a small subvention for their housing. Um, we have to kind of cut our cloth and make it go around. So, you know, instead of, I think, thinking that these uh, investment funds are the solution, they really are just the middlemen. You know, they're bringing some management capacity and some high-priced finance. Um, they're, not, they're not bringing land. We have land. Um, we have cheaper money we can avail of. And all the builders who will be doing uh, it are own The cheaper our own money would
1: obviously be government borrowing, for investment in housing.
2: Well, housing is is a bit different in that it, you just need seed funding, really. Uh, and if you look at how you know the the native, I suppose, um, uh, developers and small builders would have done it, um, they, you know, they're very careful about how they roll their role they're funding. And um, O'Kulen is a housing cooperative are doing this, and they've done a six million euro housing development with only one point eight million of finance, because in housing it's little increments. So you yeah. you know you build the first four you sell or rent them, and they're an asset then, and then you use that money for the next four or the next eight. So I I would much rather see government giving seed funding to small builders uh, who want to become small developers or who get contracts on public lands or get a license to build on public lands and then they sell them back to the local authority or they build them on contract or they rent them or whatever they do. Uh, but, but you know, just tap into that resource of building capacity um, and that is regionally based. A lot of it is regionally based. A lot of the need is regionally based. And uh, with the pandemic, we probably want employment to be regionally based as well. We don't necessarily want everybody driving to Dublin to build... 18-storey apartments. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think, you know, we have all of the tools to hand and we could be much smarter about it.
1: Rory, um, one of the things I was struck by as we uh, chatted earlier in the week, um, and we talked about the party politics behind some of this and, you know, different emphases across parties. One of the things that you said to me was, well, look, at I want to spend the next few years creating a broad social societal consensus about the importance of home and housing and the full range of solutions that are out there for us such that by the time we get to the next election you know the differences between manifestos have to be narrowed given a consensus. Um, I'm not sure if Rosemary is in the audience but I know there's considerable efforts going on to look at the right to housing and the insertion of that within the Constitution, what that would require. Arguably, before that, there is a question of values, which precedes a rights-based discussion of it. And values is a conversion of the heart, of the mind, of all of that in sync. Um, What are the values? which and what has informed those that you are bringing to the work that you're setting out to do over the next few years to get to the kind of social, the conversation across society, the consensus you want to see?
3: Yeah, I think that um, my work has been, you know, for almost 20 years from social policy, from uh, economic policy, perspective has looked at and tried to research and understand and better understand and my work in practice. I worked in a a social housing community for years in in Dublin's inner city um, with the community trying to develop issues around housing conditions. Um, My research has worked with directly, I've worked with homeless families to try and understand and get their understanding and and highlight the, the detrimental impact of emergency accommodation. And just for a minute, uh, I'd like to outline some of that, because I just think it's, it's horrific what we're doing to children in this country. There are, I calculate, and there's, there's been no state calculation of the exact numbers, but I would calculate at least 14,000 children have gone through emergency accommodation in the last six years. Probably double that have gone through a process of being made homeless, that from the private rental sector, you're talking about tens of thousands of children and their families. And what I've been looking at is, is the, traumatic, the traumatic impact of that and that sense of dislocation. And there's a concept called ontological insecurity, which draws from psychology. Um, and it's, it's some of the work I've tried to do on this concept of the psychosocial impact of home. What does home mean to us? And... When you, you're removed, like when you think of children, for example, and I think of my little kids and they have their bed and, you know, they have their little teddies around it and they have their book and their thing and, you know, their little, you know, treasures that they capture. And when you think a child and their family have to be uprooted from that, to go to somewhere where they've no idea, they can only bring two teddies in their bag or whatever it is. And I get deeply emotional about this and upset about it because I think we should and we need to, as a society, um, understand the fundamental necessity to human beings in child development, in progression. Like I was, some of the research had talked to, you know, paediatricians in Temple Street Hospital talking about children presenting with burns because in emergency accommodation it was too small. They were pulling kettles down on themselves. Like this is structural violence we are doing against our children because of the failure to provide policy of housing and the failure to understand the fundamental necessity of home in our lives, and that's where I want to take the conversation, that we move it away from commodity, investment, market, to agree a consensus. You cannot have a life with dignity. You cannot raise your children without a home. You cannot be a person with a secure, stable, affordable home. If we can all agree that, then we go, Okay. well, how do we do it? You don't just hand it over to investors. You don't just rely on the market. The state, our country, decides, yes, We do everything we can, and it comes in multiple forms. The private sector will be involved, the public sector will be involved. But I think where I've been coming to is looking at the marriage equality referendum, the repeal movement. It was a cultural change, it was conversations people had. And I think we need to have those conversations about the Celtic tiger, when housing, when everybody thought, a lot of people thought, I'll buy a home, I'll buy a second home, we have all these accidental landlords, We distorted our view, our understanding of what home was became distorted and dysfunctional. And I want that conversation. Hopefully we can have it, and hopefully we will come to a consensus that home is a human right. We have the referendum, we put it in our constitution, and we change the policies, we change the action, and we ensure everyone has a home.
1: Rob this time last year you told me you were um, setting out on the uh, path of building a business you didn't necessarily know that your life would involve what it has now um, evolved into taking a significant part of your time will you tell us that story about um, your own um, you know entry into this Um, what motivated it And also, how it has drawn you into the community, and what you have seen as the community around you in relation to the particular housing development that brought you in. How the community both coalesced and I'm sure experienced conflict, but is also continuing to experience that.
4: So I would describe this as sort of a radicalization that happened to me over the last year, which was I was embarking, going out and launching a business my partner. We were setting up an architecture studio in Drumcondra, where we also live. And we were talking a lot about build-to-rent and these niche forms of investment housing. There was a pub across the street that many would know from GAA. It's Quinn's Pub. And there was existing planning permission on that site for a number of apartments. And there was a new speculative planning permission went in for 50 build-to-rent units. And we looked at, myself, and my partner, looked at the planning application. We looked at the plans. And this is the first time you start to see, you see a one-bedroom unit where your, your window from your bedroom faces directly onto a shared external corridor. You don't have, this, this is because this is taking advantage of the opt-outs from size standards and private amenity space standards that you would be required in other housing. So we looked at this and we said, surely this can't be serious. And that was just the first taste, because a couple months later, there's an application goes in for an eight hectare site, which is half the size of Trinity College's main campus, for 1,600 build-to-rent units built to the same standards that I described before. So by taking advantage of this lower set of standards, this developer is basically saying one in three units in this, in this neighborhood-sized scheme will be the size of three car parking spaces, and will have no external amenity space or balcony or in many of these units the bed space is in the middle of the plan with either an internal window facing onto its kitchenette or no window at all you're you're talking about 1 in 3 units in what is a neighborhood sized development are being decided by a spreadsheet that says well if we get enough people earning over 100,000 euro a year to pay two grand a month each to rent one of these we're going to make x over 30 years what could be an opportunity for Developing this neighborhood and integrating it with our city will have drained 1 billion euro out of the community. And when we talk about this as well, there's something that we need to talk about, which is pseudo public space, which is this developer proposed that not, uh, not an inch of the land would actually be handed over to the management of Dublin City Council. So what we saw happening around us was essentially death by a thousand cuts to Dublin, and it's happening to our other cities as well. And it's you're allowing institutional funds to come in to buy up an enclave and create a, re- a high rent, rental only enclave built to minimum standards based off a financing model. That means only they can deliver this, only the, the fund can deliver this. So we put that argument out to our community. We, we got together and funnily enough, we were actually coming back from a trip to Dingle this summer and we got a phone call off, off a, a new, uh, colleague let's say who we'd spoken to at, or we'd met at a, a workshop a local politician had had on this uh, and we basically got together with him we had a phone call that evening we put together a leaflet and my partner and this gentleman got together they went to 2,000 homes in the area and they leafleted and they said this is what's going in to your neighborhood would you like to downsize well I'm sorry but there's not a single home here that you can actually buy would you like for your children to be able to live in the area? I'm sorry, but there's nothing here for them. This is for young, increasingly internationally mobile workers. This is, this is where our, our, the development of our communities is being decided by what's the most lucrative form of investment housing they, they can get. And so we've had a lot of conversations with that community since. And we went out and we contacted the media. And within that week, we had six or seven media publications or interviews and everything else. And we tried to just give people in our community and elsewhere agency to understand there's a lot of bluster around housing in this country. There's, there's a lie that we, we have high rents because we have a serial objectors who are objecting to housing. There are tens of thousands of units with planning permission in this country that are not realized. They're not realized for other reasons, but it's nothing to do with serial objectors. There's a lie that NIMBYs and others are holding back housing, oh, if you guys weren't objecting to this, we'd have 10,000 units and then the two grand a month rent would, would drop, that's not going to happen. This is, an, this is an investment asset that takes the form of residential property. It's not designed to lower anyone's rent. So the community now where we are, we had gone and we garnered 120 observations on the scheme. We put those together and they went straight to onboard Panaga. And this goes back to that point about agency. Why is it that we were going to onboard Panara? Well, it's because the government has said through this false narrative that we have serial objectors that that are delaying housing. We are going to allow these mega schemes to to go straight to onboard Panara and ignore the local authority. We're gonna let them ignore the local development plan. This scheme breaks the Dublin city development plan in terms of the size of units, the mix of units, the heights as well and whatever your opinion on tall buildings, by allowing a kind of regulatory environment like this, what you're doing is increasing speculation at the cost of affordability. So if you had certainty beforehand that you could build six stories and you could build a dozen apartments, now maybe you, you can bet that you can build 18 stories and 40 apartments, that increases the cost of the land, that gets fed back into the eventual housing, whatever gets built, rental or otherwise. And so the way we see forward with this, or the positive that we've seen from this is the agency that the people in our community have now. When, when they're canvassed, and we've heard this from a local politician who was canvassing that direct area, Congliffe Road, um, one in two houses asked, built to rent, why is that happening? Why is it that there's four or 5,000 units proposed in this area, they're student housing, they're co-living, they're built to rent, Where's the homes that people can own? Where's the homes that, that are designed with a community in mind?
1: Orla, when you listen to Rob and what he's describing there, the only thing that can suggest to you is that if you had that money, you wouldn't choose to live that way. You would most likely go a little further out in the city looking for more space. At some level this just feels like another recipe to dereliction in terms of the pathway for some of these buildings or that there is going to be another leaser of last resort in terms of we already have a significant dereliction and vacancy uh, issue across the country you it's another one of the solutions that you come to. So you've come with a range of solutions for new build. You're also concerned that we are under-engaging with the potential, and especially when we throw the retrofitting challenge into this, um, that is already extant, not just on service sites, but on buildings that exist across our cities and towns. What's your sense of the scope for dereliction to be addressed and a new set of solutions emerge from that um well i, th- I think there's a lot of potential there just
2: to finish out the point that, that rob was making um, this this round of deregulation started about five years ago with the intention of having apartments in dublin available uh, between 200 and 260,000, and they're now double that so the the, the, the deregulation was actually captured I suppose as a vehicle to make a new product which is twice the price so maybe there is some buyer's remorse at government level at this point um but but it looks as you say there are other options available to people at that kind of cost range uh, so people have choices I think are going to again go into the commuter belt or into the suburbs where half a million will buy you a lot of house in in Dublin or, or in the commuter counties um, and fewer people are going to be commuting now um, and it's increasingly likely I think that we will see the 60 units there or or somewhere else uh, being taken by the state at a half a million each as social housing um, uh, which would be you know a retrograde step in terms of public finances as well as everything else but to follow through your point um I think we, we have a lot we can capture. We do have needs for small households that haven't been served, particularly um, social housing uh, tenants or people who um, uh, need some public subsidy. And we also ha- now have a plan to replace direct provision with proper housing, where people have the dignity of a front door and making their own meals and um, and, and being able to feed their children at night and, and integrate with the community. Um, and one of the models I would see for those smaller households and the people who, who have that need is to integrate them in communities by using upper floors uh, by re-inhabiting and populating towns and and there's enormous potential there um, we have a huge amount of, of vacancy in commercial buildings um, we have a lot of vacancy in Ireland also in in residential stock a very high level Um, So when we hear all of the time about there being a supply crisis, um, it's really more an affordability and an allocation crisis in a lot of levels. Um, We have a lot of property that is being used in tourist areas as uh, tourist lets on the weekends and vacant all week because renting it for two nights at the weekend will bring you more rent than renting it for a month. Um, So there's, there's obviously something, a disconnect there, that we need to rebalance that so that it is better to rent as permanent housing than it is to hold it vacant for half the year uh, because tourists will pay more. So we can shift that housing, I think, fairly quickly if we went about it right into being permanent housing. I also think we can incentivise people who have commercial buildings, so there may be pubs and shops that have had difficult couple of years um, into aligning them with grant systems that are available to do upper floor refurbishments and then people get a four or five year lease from the local authority which will pay back their investment in doing up the property they get energy grants and a wraparound package on that and then suddenly you have people in the rural towns and you have a few more kids to keep the teacher in the school or you get a public health nurse to support the community that's there and you know it's I think it's all you know I've called it the Dunkirk solution before it's it's all the. Lit- little boats, not waiting for the ship, you know, which maybe isn't going to be the most pleasant place to live. Um, There are so many small local strategies um, in just being, uh, I suppose, more resourceful about what we have. And and that's how Ireland approached housing in the 1930s when there was nothing. People were very, very resourceful. They were self-sufficient small farmers and they didn't wait. You know, uh, the the mindset at government wasn't to wait. It was to make the most of Every bit that was available, um, and, and to drive the money instead of into the pockets of investors in other places, but to drive it into
1: the pockets of, of local tradespeople and to drive it into local communities. Rory, um, if we go there from Orla's point on mindset, back to your winning hearts, minds, and mindset, there is a wave of activism and there is an expression of that culturally which has gathered huge force in the um, last number of years and even months. Um, I'm going to ask you as an artist yourself now to um, stand up to uh, perform for us. And uh, I want to thank um, all the contributors here and um, wish you the best in the endeavours to come, thank Rory. you.
3: OK. Okay, uh, this is not quite my um, established academic uh, way of delivering lectures, but uh, I performed this, this is a, a spoken word poem that I wrote based on Um, I suppose, working in this area, but increasingly talking to people, listening to people uh, on my podcast uh, around the impact of the housing crisis, the human impact. And I do want to put a shout out for Sharon, who is in Ballyferreter, who is facing eviction um, and is looking for a rental home in Kerry. If anybody has one, uh, let us know. And that's not a joke. That is very serious. There are people in Kerry who are being evicted uh, who need rental homes. It's called Make Home a Human Right. Hail Hinton, Mar the Hinton, Fain. Home is our heart. Home is your heart. Home is your ho- is your home is our hope, our health, our education, community. Home is life. Home is where our babies learn to crawl, our children grow, dream of their future, feel safe, rooted, stable. Home is where we all dream and create and cry, celebrate and mourn, where we age and die with dignity. But home is warped into property, assets, investment, turned you generation rent, you homeless into a commodity, into a crisis tearing at the nation's soul, filled with anxiety consumed by fear of eviction, of no future. Stuck in the box room of my parents' home, stuck with rent I can't pay, Me and my four-year-old little girl, stuck homeless in a B&B room, she asks me, Daddy, when can we go home? You are silenced by shame, but the shame is all theirs. Where is your future? Was it 100 years ago we fought evictions by absentee landlords? Sadly, they've returned, now shaped like a bird of prey. Investor funds buying up your homes, it's no future. It's your future, your dreams bought and sold. It's no country for our young, our artists, our renters, our families, our lone parents, our disabled, our travellers. But this is no accident. This is policy. The ghosts of the tenant farmers, the ghosts of the tenements haunt our present. The ghosts of 1916 call out to us, remember the proclamation, cherish all children equally. There is a murmur, I can hear it, even over the Dingle storm. The risen people reawaken in whispers seeking a future, a home in our thoughts and feelings, that this is not normal, this is not okay. In artists dreaming of a real republic, in protests on the street, and renters organizing for a home for all, for a human right for all, for our future. We have risen in repeal, we have risen in marriage equality, we can rise again together to make home a human right. So don't emigrate, don't despair, don't give up, you are our future. The housing crisis can be solved, the housing crisis will be solved. Home is your future. Home is a human right. Dream, dare, believe, we will make home a human right.
0: Thank you so much to Rory, Orla and Rob for joining us in Dingle. Keep an eye on the Other Voices YouTube page for a video of Murren's one-on-one interview with Orla Hegarty where they talk more about housing, architecture and the ongoing COVID pandemic. On our next episode, we speak with Guardian US editor John Mulholland about an extraordinary few years in American news. If things
3: like inequality and racial injustice and the erosion of democratic norms, if they bother you, it does have a kind of personal impact on
0: you. And all of those things are rife in the States. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Cassandra. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.